You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Beanan from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two splendidly sexy, stunning, sensational uh, superstar colleagues, Dr. Abby <laughs> Eplin from Nashville Fertility Center. Wow, what an introduction. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. I'm so blessed to have a friend that is so good at alliteration. <laughs> I know. She makes me feel so good about myself. I know. I mean, between the two of you, like you dance, you paint, you cook, you do all these amazing things. I alliterate. And you cook too. You're a good cook, Carrie. You're a cook. You do a lot of amazing things. That's right. You do. You juggle, you juggle a lot more things than you give yourself credit for. Ah, that may be true. Uh, but if I don't think about it, then I don't freak out about it. And there is something to be said for that. Uh, <laughs> denial is not just a river. Your best it. friend. <laughs> so, Abby, speaking of wild and crazy things, you you just came back. and from vacation, from vacation. And what you were doing. And I want, I want you to tell everyone what you were doing. And then I want you, and then I want to tell you what I thought of as you were telling me that that's what you were doing. <laughs> so, well, we went to Scandinavia. And so, you know, it's in the middle of summertime and here in Nashville, it was a hundred degrees today. So for two weeks, I was in weather that was anywhere between highs and the fifties to sixties. Well, on this particular day, we were taking a train in Europe from Oslo north to um, a city that, that, um, well, basically, we're taking a train and, and we were taking it toward a city that had fjords in it. So I didn't know what fjords were, but they're like big mountains that have been carved from glaciers. And so the west coast of Norway has these beautiful fjords. There's water all around and high, high mountains and they have snow on the top of them in the wintertime. And and as they as the snow melts, that it forms like waterfalls. And so when I booked this trip, you know, the travel agent said, well, this would be really cool to take the train and then bike down to this little city called Flom. And so she said, it'll be really scenic. It'll be really nice. You'll really like it. So, you know, I'm thinking summertime, you know. My first question, did you literally bike down or was there any biking up? <laughs> Mostly down. There really wasn't much biking up. But but when I mean down, I mean down, down. So we so two stops before we were to get off and get our bicycles, there was snow on the ground. It was 10 degrees Celsius, which I don't know what that would be in Fahrenheit, but it was cold. My husband had on shorts because <laughs> he thought that, you know, we're going to be biking, it'll be hot. Literally, there's snow on the ground. We get to the stop, <laughs> we get there, and we thought it was like a bike group of people. No, it was like, here's your bike, go go to the end of the platform, follow the pathway for 12 miles, you can't miss Flom. And that, that was, those were basically the only instructions we got. And when we got <laughs> you can't miss you it. Can't when we got it. there though, the biggest thing that was really kind of scary was it was sleeting. It was raining and sleeting. Oh. And so he had to change from his shorts into his pants. <laughs> and so um so the guy literally gives us the bikes. We're like, okay, here we go. Well, he forgot to sort of mention, and we weren't really thinking that we're like in an elevation of like 3000 feet and we're going to be going down to sea level. And so we made that 3000 foot to sea level drop, I would say within probably a mile to a mile and a half at the most. So literally <laughs> start going down the fjord and it's like, 
downhill. You make a hairpin curve and you go down. I mean, you're, you're on the side of a mountain and it's the width of a, a road, but it's a gravel road. You know, you slide off the edge of the gravel road, you're falling off the mountain. So it was. A, so I will admit, <laughs> there was, most of the places I would walk down and I'd get to the corner. But the problem is, even when you got to the corner, it was really steep. So it was really, really steep. It was beautiful. I mean, this huge, like, waterfall, like Niagara Falls was flowing next to us. When we got down into the valley... And there are still some other hills to go down. But you looked all around, there were these huge mountains with waterfalls all over them from the snow that was melting, you know, from the top of the mountain. So it was really beautiful, but it was cold and it was rainy. And, you know, it wasn't like I had Gore-Tex pants on or anything. So we're all wet. We were cold, but it was really beautiful. though. <laughs> but the first I just like to say, my eyes and Carrie's eyes are like big as golf balls. <laughs> well, and I'm not exaggerating. I mean, literally, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. None of us did. And the guy was like, yeah, just follow the platform. And, you know, you you can't miss it. And my gosh, these mountains, I mean, it is like straight down. It was terrifying. You know, my husband, my daughter, they jumped out of an airplane. So for them, it wasn't that big of a deal. But for me, I'm like, I don't want to fall off the side of the mountain. <laughs> Carrie, Carrie's our safety person. <laughs> I mean, Abby's our safety person. Yeah, I'm the nervous Nelly. So that wasn't my idea of fun. But it was really beautiful. That was gorgeous. And it was really the best way to see kind of untouched land. There's nobody around. As you can imagine, <laughs> nobody else was stupid enough to be biking down the fjord and <laughs> when it was snowing and sleeting, but it was beautiful though. So anyway, I've, I think I've endorsed travel to the fjords now, biking down the fjords. <laughs> so when you said that you had done that, I just had this vision of, so I, I really like all the Pixar movies and, and all the Disney and all that stuff. And so yeah. in the movie Luca, where they're having the race at the end, they go down from the, you know, the tippy top of this super steep hill and they go down and they hit a bump and the two boys go flying into into the water and they become sea monsters and so i just had this mental image of you and your family going down hitting a bump flying to the water and becoming a platinum sea monster i kid you not carrie that's the way i felt i felt i was one stone away from flying off the edge of the field it was scary that sounds horrifying I mean, oh if I see Luca, I've never seen it, but I think I'll have PTSD if I do see it, though. Uh, quite, quite possibly. And now whenever I see that movie, I will think You're of you. Think of me. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I will totally think of you. But I survived. I survived the fjord. Whew. Holy cow. I, I, I am kind of having palpitations just thinking about that entire experience. And I'm not usually like... a safety freak or anything but that sounds really let's, let's focus on some questions things that get us back to like what we are comfortable our comfort zone yes take me take me to the safe comfort zone of talking about sperm and eggs and uh the uterus i got gotcha. you let's, let's do it susan let's hit all the questions <laughs> all right hello i love your podcast it has been so helpful as i'm beginning my fertility journey my question is how common is it to have low amh levels due to autoimmune autoimmune disease and do you often see anti-ovarian antibodies that lead to low amh susan i promptly pump this back to you because you in my mind the are the autoimmune expert <laughs> you are you are. So, I mean, the important thing to know is if you have an autoimmune disease, it is 
possible that you could have other autoimmune diseases because they tend to be in families together. So it is not unusual for someone to have autoimmune diseases and have an otherwise unexplained diminished ovarian reserve, whether from a high FSH level or a low AMH level. So I would say, you know, it, it may be a cause um, there, you know, we, I always say that we live in a Google world that we like to Google. Why is the sky blue? <laughs> and in, in, in fertility, we don't always have great answers and diminished ovarian reserve and autoimmune disease. Um, they do dance together. Seems reasonable. I'll take it. I have nothing to add. Speaking of, uh, I do have one tiny thing to add our shared autoimmune patient. Pardon yes. Me. Oh, yay! Yeah. Yeah. So we shall see, but I'm super excited. That is so very this cool. is why I think you're the guru because she, she talks to you once and boom, here we go. <laughs> well, I'm happy to help. The magic touch, huh? Yeah. Happy All to right, help what anyway. Else you got? All right. I've been trying for just under a year. My doctor told me I have unexplained infertility and put me on a higher dose of Clomid with the intention of doing IUI this month. My day 12 follicle scan showed three mature follicles. So I seem to respond well. My doctor does not like to risk multiples and suggested I take a day after pill. My husband and I had sex on day 10. I got peak fertility on day 12. I feel conflicted on whether or not I should take the pill. Do most fertility clinics avoid time to intercourse and IUI with three mature follicles? Risk of triplets seems low. I don't know what to do. Wow. <laughs> I, I think that is a highly, highly conservative individual um, that I, I like the idea of somebody taking the day morning after pill after three mature follicles from a Clomid cycle seems a little excessively um, cautious to me yeah yeah and you know we don't want anybody to have triplets but yeah that seems that seems a little a little aggressive to me too i would i wouldn't do that as a physician or recommend that i have definitely worked with conservative physicians like that for uh for many years actually over the course of training and career and all of that and you know i i when i was first out and i was completely freaked out about it i i have definitely canceled cycles for three follicles before when someone was like on their very first cycle. I've canceled cycles. I've never offered the morning after pill for somebody who had intercourse after taking Clomid. Mm, okay. Fair. I don't think I've ever, I haven't done Canceling that for, a cycle versus offering the morning after pill, I think is a yeah. different ball game. Fair. Fair. I think, I think the only time I've ever offered the morning after pill is when someone's had like five or six or a really like, Oh my gosh, kind of moment. Um, and usually with gonadotropins too. So, right. okay, I take it back. Yeah, I don't think I've seen the morning after pill for a while. All right, next one. Can you explain the purpose of hormone suppression while prepping for an FET? I'm currently on Orlissa because of my endometriosis and all the side effects from this temporary menopause are putting me through the ringer, but I completely trust my doctor and know it's the best thing for me right now. Just wondering if you could explain the purpose of hormone suppression so I can have a more educated response to others as to why I'm going through this part is important. Well, I mean, 
sometimes we, if we don't suppress you, a couple of things, we worry a little bit about you might ovulate and produce your own progesterone and we don't want that to happen. We also worry a little bit that you might have a cyst on your ovary when you're about ready to get started. And so it's helpful to keep you suppressed. I, I don't necessarily use Orlissa usually. Usually I just use a birth control pill, but certainly that's an option if you have endometriosis and you're having pain with it. But it's it's mainly to suppress your hormones so that you don't have a cyst and so that you don't secrete hormones that may kind of interfere with what we do. Yeah, would agree with that. And it's helpful, especially with the history of endo to do that for more than just a very short period of time. Like that's part of the reason why we tend to do it for several weeks to occasionally a month or two um, and and really suppress it and get good control. Good stuff. All right. All right. Next one. Went in for an ultrasound for my IUI on Wednesday. I had zero mature follicles on my left ovary and two on my right that measured 22 millimeters and 24 millimeters. My doctor scheduled trigger Wednesday evening and IUI Friday morning. One, are my follicles too big and won't they be way too big by Friday? Two, is it normal not to have any mature follicles on one ovary? Three, my doc didn't order an HSG or saline ultrasound because I had one child is a sound reasoning. Couldn't my tubes now be blocked? Four, my doc ordered two shots of Avadrol, one to trigger and one after IUI. Never heard of this. Have y'all? So going through going through the questions. Follicle um, size. They're fine. Don't worry about it. They're 22 and 24. She's fine. Yeah, they're fine. Yeah. yeah they're not going to grow after you have the trigger shot. They may be a little bit, but meh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Is it normal not to have any mature follicles on one ovary? Absolutely. Yep. Sure. Yep. Yep. They but don't doc, follow rules. Yeah. Doctor no order rules. an HSG. Um, she's had a child before. Yeah. Um, that could kind of go either way. I mean, I'm the type of person I, I think it's better to know than not know. So I probably would check your have checked your tubes, but I don't think, you know, I don't think it's a big deal if they didn't immediately check your tubes. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. My doc ordered two shots of Avadrol, one to trigger and one for after IUI. Yeah, actually, symptoms will do that, believe it or not, to kind of keep the corpus luteum going so that it'll help help it produce more progesterone. <laughs> we actually will do that with our FSH cycle sometimes. I don't, we don't routinely do it. Interesting. I've never done that. Have you, Carrie? I haven't either. No, but yeah. good to know. I mean, that's kind of what I would... It makes yes, sense. Because LH and yeah. HGG and support the corpus luteum, like it's a different way of getting luteal support than just giving straight progesterone. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's probably cheaper ultimately and less obnoxious to do one Avadrel shot than it is to do progesterone. But okay, we'll take it. All right. This one's a little more lengthy. Um, hello, I love your podcast. I would love some advice. I'm 35, AMH a 0.3, FSH 14.8. Otherwise healthy, good BMI, active lifestyle. Boyfriend, we're trying not to have children when they had the labs checked, just got them checked out of curiosity as she was turning 35. After they found out the news, they fast-tracked to an REI. They wanted to do whatever it needs to be to be parents one day. So they moved forward with embryo banking. One round of IVF following antagonist protocol um, only had three eggs, two mature, um, but nothing made it past day three. Um, planning to do another round soon and we'll change to microdose flare in the interim REI suggested to see a urologist. Boyfriend has a lot of sperm and motility is great, but low morphology. 
Um, so our urologist who also found out he has varicoceles and might recommend surgery. We're waiting for the results of sperm DNA fragmentation before making that decision. Urologist also recommended we wait 90 days for my boyfriend to be on supplements to optimize sperm. He also is an elite athlete who competes in Ironmans and would like would need to stop training as intense those 90 days. I'm a little scared to wait 90 more days as I know my diminished ovarian reserve is not going to get better with time. My question is, should I go for IVF as planned in a few weeks or wait the three months to get everything optimized? We, of course, will follow up the urologist and REI coming up as they are excellent doctors that would love our opinion. So there's a lot uh, to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack. <laughs> Um, one, I want to say that when we're talking about the varicocele, I mean, I think most urologists and fertility specialists kind of agree that the, the reason to take care of a varicocele is because it's causing pain, not really because of, um, something you're trying to accomplish for, with fertility that most of the time it does not have a meaningful impact. Um, and I, I think time is not your friend and the small improvements that you may see in the firm are probably not going to vastly affect your long-term outcome. I agree. I mean, kind of the short answer is if you only have three or four eggs, he needs to have three or four sperm and that's pretty much it. And and probably from what he has, he probably has a good number. So I, I wouldn't waste 90 days trying, you know, if you're, if you're trying to do something like IUI, you know, if your AMH was good and you said, we really don't want to do IVF, we want to do IUI, then it would be worth that time to go through treatments to see if you could improve his numbers enough to make that a viable option for you. But I think based on your AMH, you know, you're in IVF Canada right now. And I think he probably has plenty of good sperm um, for the, you know, the number of eggs that you're probably going to get. So therefore I really would not wait for the fertility, the, the treatment from the urologist to take place. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. I mean, have him keep taking the supplements. They're not going to hurt anything. The surgery, do it if you if he feels compelled to for pain and discomfort reasons. But otherwise, I think really what's going to serve you the best is just get as many of those eggs out, get as many opportunities as you can mm-hmm. um, to combine with eggs and sperm. All right. Next one. Um, first off, I love listening to you and have really helped my IVF journey. I'm 33. My husband is 37. In 2020, I had a myomectomy removing 44 fibroids, which caused abdominal Ooh. adhesions. Woohoo. That's a bunch. Yeah. A HSG, lot. HSG showed hydrosalpinx. Tubes removed in 2021. Started with IVF in June 2021. AMH was 1.8, AFC 18, FSH 5.6 in November 2020. My husband's semen analysis showed only low morphology. Ended up with three embryos, good grades. First FET failed. Second one was successful, but ended in miscarriage due to PROM cervical incompetency at 18 weeks. All genetic tests were normal. We are gathering it for another retrieval. Most recent AMH is 2.34, but prolactin is slightly up at 24.9, but decreasing. Any advice? You got this. Hang in there. Keep going. Your your AFC is good. Your AMH is reasonable. Just you're 33. You're 33. Like it didn't work out the way you wanted it the first time. Just keep going. You know, there's it truly cervical incompetence, you know, considering a cerclage. Um, once you get to be usually, you know, around 12 to 14 weeks is something that a lot of people would offer. Um depending on the situation. I mean, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to gestational carriers, but I I do think it's something that you might think about. I don't think it's something you have to do, 
but I, I wouldn't consider it. If you came in to me and asked, Hey, I'm thinking about doing a gestational carrier, I wouldn't think that that was an unreasonable request. This might be worth doing a, a hysteroscopy to take a look in and see because 44 fibroids means that's like, a lot. I, I can't see how they didn't get in the cavity because that's a lot of work that they did. Um, that's wow. Well, but she she did get she did get pregnant. How far along did she get with the uh, pregnancy? Yeah. So I, I mean, if there had been adhesions there, you got pretty much got past that scare. But I'm like Carrie. After the delivery, I would definitely want to hysteroscope and and really see what the cavity looked like. A lot of times when you have a loss at 18 weeks, you have a DNC because of retained products, and, and that can cause scarring. Yeah. 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 But stay the course. I think you've still got some good eggs there and hopefully good pregnancy down the road. Yeah. All right. Next one. Love your show. Thank you guys for all that you do. I'm 30 and struggling with secondary infertility. Um, she has a low AMH for her age, 1.3. During two stems, they were able to get six PGT normal embryos. That's awesome. Wow. That's awesome. That's a lot. Our first transfer resulted in a blightum ovum Blighted ovum, despite it being PGT normal, 5AA embryo, what are the likelihood that this would happen again? Our remaining embryos are all the same grade. And would you do any testing? What causes this? Could it be a problem with my immune system causing the embryo to stop progressing? Thank you for any insight. I think the questions you're asking, nobody can really give you the answer to. I mean, you, we know it was a normal embryo as best we can tell. Sometimes there can be mosaicism where the cells that form the baby are different than the cells that form the placenta. And so, um, you know, it's possible that maybe that wasn't detected with, and I don't think you mentioned if you had genetic testing with the, with the products of conception, but uh, you know, even if we, even if we knew it was a mosaic embryo and that's why you miscarried or had the blotted ovum, uh, there's really nothing I would do any differently with the other embryos. I think you have an excellent chance with five other PGT normal embryos of doing well. So there's really no other testing or anything that I would recommend. I just kind of like we said before, I would stay the course and do the next transfer ASAP. So I, I'm a, probably a little bit more conservative with this. Um, so one realize that not all that everything in development is not necessarily um, related to chromosomes. So, you know, you may have had a chromosomally normal embryo, but if the embryo was developing and a vital structure, heart, lungs, liver, intestinal system, things like this weren't developing, sometimes they stop developing because it wasn't going to develop into the healthy baby that you're looking for. Um, in this type of situation, I would generally... Make sure we've checked, obviously, thyroid and prolactin. Make sure that those are normal. Um, knowing it was chromosomally normal, I would offer, I wouldn't require APLS testing just to make sure we're not missing something there. Um, and then making sure that had beautiful, clear images on a saline ultrasound. And if we didn't have picture perfect, considering not requiring a hysteroscopy to take a look, make sure nothing else is going on inside the uterus. But Susan, you'd assume that she had all those things or some of those things done before she ever I, got started. I don't, I, I don't assume because not all doctors practice the same. And so I've seen plenty of people who have come from other clinics who only had an HSG to check out their lining. I don't consider an HSG adequate evaluation of the uterine cavity. I, I mean, Almost all of my saline ultrasounds that I call abnormal had normal HSGs. And when I go into a hysteroscopy, there's pathology there. So 
Carrie? I think you could go either way. I think I probably lean more along the lines of Susan to make sure that all the boxes have checked. Um, you know, I kind of automatically assume that everybody does that mostly because my partners are OCD. Most people don't. Most people also don't have six normal embryos sitting there too. Most people have exactly. one to three normal embryos. Yeah. So I think, I think you could make a case for doing, doing either. The fact that you're asking the question means you probably want to go maybe a little bit more thoroughly and just say, all right, let's check these boxes off so that if something we don't want to have happen happens again, that we can feel comfortable. Okay. We did what we needed to do. And then, and then really a lot of it is just putting your head down and continuing on. And once you check all those boxes and say, okay, we're good, then just keep transferring until you get something to stick or until something becomes clear of, okay, this is what we need to do differently. Absolutely. Good stuff. Okay. Next one. Hi there. This podcast has been a lifesaver. I'm about to turn 36 and been tracking my hormones since 2019. AMH has been low testing at 0.6 in 2019 and now down to 0.2 in 2022. Um, Finally had my first fertility consult thinking I would be able to go straight to IVF and was shocked to find out I potentially need an egg donor. During the antral follicle count, I got a diagnosis of endometriosis with a few chocolate cysts in my ovaries and only three follicles. My world is shattered. I had no idea that I had endometriosis and might need an egg donor. Is it even worth trying to conceive naturally or doing IUI? Are there any glimmers of hope with this diagnosis? My partner and I would like to have two to three kids. And this is the first time trying to conceive. I was on the birth control pill for 10 years and copper IUD for eight years. And so this is the first time I've ever tried to conceive. I know IVF with egg donor is probably the way to go. I'm just so devastated thinking about having to use donor eggs. And I've had this diagnosis endometriosis all along. Oh, poor thing. No, no, that sucks. It really sucks. But, you know, the one thing I would say is you never know. In our field, you never know. Sometimes patients that you think are going to have the hardest time to get pregnant don't and vice versa. And so before I ever tried, I wouldn't just give up and say, oh, I need to go to an egg donor. I mean, if it were me personally, I would I would try. I mean, you don't know until you try. And so, you, you know, the hardest step is that first one. And so, you know, my recommendation would be I would proceed on now as if, you know, yeah, I know I have a huge challenge ahead of me, but if it were me personally, I would proceed on as if I'm going to try IVF and see what happens. And, you know, if you have a really bad outcome with your IVF cycle, you know, maybe, you know, you'll reevaluate and decide to go a different direction. But I wouldn't just, I wouldn't give up before you've ever started, I guess is what I would say. So, I mean, there's pretty good data to say that ovarian reserve testing and the prognosis of it in people who have not tried to conceive, that it kind of sucks. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, you're, you're essentially in untested waters. I mean, I'd rather have you who hasn't tried to conceive with this scenario than somebody who has been trying to conceive for five years with this scenario. So, um, and I mean, we've all gotten people pregnant with three follicles and triomas. Yeah. And I, I mean, I mean, it's it, a challenge, but it, I mean, it's, it's definitely can happen. It's hard, but I mean, I don't think that's something that any of us hearing this scenario that we would necessarily go straight to egg donor unless that's what you personally wanted. Yeah. I'll probably just give all the options and say, you know, how do you feel about it? Cause I'm going to be some people who say, screw this. I'm not wasting my time and effort and money and emotional, all the things I'm just go straight to donor. And there are other people who are like, you know what? I got to try. Cause I got to know. And both of those things are legit. Mm-hmm. 
It so. is. It is. All right. What do y'all think about the MTHFR mutation? I personally hate it. So we can just... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, write down MTHFR and you'll get pretty much all of our ideas of what that word stands for. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I, I, I think it's one of those things that, you know, MTHFR was a big thing like 20 years ago. And then we came to find out that really a very, 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 very small percentage of the population have have it, it actually is meaningful. Like only people who have second and third trimester losses, not people who have first trimester losses, which is 95% of the losses that we see. It's one of the uh, clearest explanations in medicine of how things on the internet never die mm-hmm. uh, because Absolutely. everybody blames everything in the free world on MTHFR, which is easily possible because like 40% of the population has at least one yeah. mutation. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it, fine, take a little extra folic acid or L-methylfolate. If, if it makes you feel better, it will not harm you, but it's probably not the root of all evil either. Exactly. And by probably, I mean, it's not the word it's of not. <laughs> Yeah. Agreed. All right. Y'all want to do one more? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Hello. Thank you for doing your podcast. It's been so helpful for me on our fertility journey. In February, we found out my husband has a very low sperm count. Each sample has been less than 10 million modal sperm. Oh, sorry. I even read that wrong. Less than 10 modal sperm, not oh. million, just 10. Oh, wow. <laughs> it shows you how much we read these. Um, my husband had a Tessie done and his varicocele fix. They collected a small amount of sperm during the Tessie. So the doctor says our best sample for IVF and XC will be a fresh sample. I'm set to start my IVF cycle next month. I'm 25 and my husband is 26 and my test results have come back normal. With my husband having a very low sperm count, will that have any impact on our fertilization rates, our fer- chances of fertilization lower because of the very small number of sperm. Kind of depends. <laughs> Functionally, yeah, probably because they don't have a whole lot to choose from. And so, when you look at when you look at a sperm sample and you think about the percentages that we're looking at, so in a normal sperm sample that's got I don't know 30, 40 million sperm, whatever you're looking at at least 40% that are moving and, and that's considered normal. So 60% are not moving and we're cool with that. And 4% have a normal appearance, which means 96% do not. And also we are totally cool with that. So that's no big deal when you've got 30 million sperm, but when you only have 10, that means that there is a decent chance that a fair number of those sperm aren't going to be the, um, you know, the, the model Olympians that we want them to be. And so they're not the Hugh Jackman sperm. Yeah, I was thinking yes. that and I was like, if I say Hugh Jackman sperm, y'all are going to laugh at me. Um, Sorry, not that that has ever stopped me before. That was in a previous episode. We talked about Hugh Jackman, but we were talking about how, how talented and wonderful he is and how great his sperm probably is. I was, uh, that is not a creeper statement at all. (laughs) Actually, Carrie was saying that, I think, if I had really wanted to throw you under the bus. Uh I I see you, sweet little Nashville lady. Like, that was you talking about Hugh Jackman Spark. Um, But... Oh crap, now I forgot what I was talking about. (laughs) They're not all Hugh Jackman sperm, probably, is what you were saying. You're not all going to have Hugh Jackman sperm. Um, 
Are we going to get a note from his lawyer? God, I hope not. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Hey, maybe Hugh Jackman would come on and talk to us. We can oh, get that's our, his... great. Can, can he bring Ryan Reynolds too? That'd be awesome. <laughs> um, we should totally take this episode and put it on both of their, all of their social medias. <laughs> anyway, um, with only 10 sperm, you're probably not going to have the all 10 of them be A plus students. And so, yes, that actually probably is going to have an impact on fertility. It's probably going to be a, a lower fertilization rate as a result of it. Um, but you have 25 year old eggs. Yeah. 25 year old eggs. You have a 25 year old husband who also probably looks like Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds put together. And so, you know, you just got that going for you. For sure. going for you. And even if like, let's say they get a bunch of eggs out and they don't have a sperm for every egg, they're just going to freeze those eggs and they're going to pull out more sperm later. And you're just going to keep going. And you know, you have 25 year old eggs. Let's give it a shot. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So now that I am completely derailed thinking about movie stars, <laughs> I am um, very glad that I got to spend this time with both of my lovely girls, um, as well as all of our listeners. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe. Leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear you. Um, post this all over Hugh Jackman and Ryan Reynolds' social media so that they come onto our show so that I can just sit here and fan all completely and um yeah stop by on facebook instagram leave us a like and a hello and a follow and all the things you can also visit fertilitydocsandcensor.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility all questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for our ask the doc segment so don't hold back we love episodes ideas as well so let us know what you're thinking when we hear and as always this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.